I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This week, part two of our conversation with Parker Palmer. I think this brings up a question that we often ask, and I think we're dancing around it, and I'm not sure how I want to articulate it, but I think I want to bring it in here. We talk about silence, and you've alluded to it, that sometimes there's a, there's a negative silence. There's a, what we call a toxic silence. When we, there's a silencing and, and a marginalizing, and, and you've already mentioned a little bit in that answer. And I'm wondering... I'm not even exactly sure what I want to ask here, but I want, because you've mentioned a little bit, but I would like us to unpack a little bit and mention this idea of toxic silence and about the necessity to kind of fight against it. And you have a little bit in your answer. So I'm wondering, is there anything more that we can unpack there about toxic silence and, and how we can, especially maybe from your Quaker background and from this storytelling you're describing, how do we discern? between the silencing so that we don't silence God's voice or the voice of the other, and yet also question and struggle and allow for positive silence. I'm wondering if there's some more you had to offer there. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of things. I mean, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you um, articulated the question that was on your heart. I'll just say one thing very quickly, that in the Quaker community, uh, this is one of the very interesting things I learned from 11 years living in a Quaker community. In the Quaker community, the, the core religious act is the meeting for worship, mm. which is co- a collective silence out of which people rise and speak as moved by the Spirit. Mm. Now, if you're at, in a Quaker meeting that's based in a big university town, they more often rise and speak out of being moved by the New York Times headlines of that <laughs> Morning, but if you're if you're in a real Quaker meeting, they <laughs> they move and speak because they are they are moved by the Spirit. And the reason Quakers are called Quakers is that in the early days, they were so moved by the spirits that they they shook before they they stood and they trembled as they spoke. Mm-hmm. Outsiders looked in and said, "Ah, you Quakers!" <laughs> it was a derogatory name and, and typical. Nonviolent style, they said, okay, we're Quakers. <laughs> the real name is the Religious Beautiful. Society of Friends. But the point I'm getting to is that when we had a when we had a business meeting at Pendle Hill with decisions to be made, number one, Quakers don't call it a business meeting. They call it a meeting for worship on the occasion of business. Uh-huh. That's a significant difference between a denomination that says, over here is our is our church service, and we're all going to be pious, nice people. Over here is our business meeting, and we're going to do backroom deals and cutthroats and 
you know, who cares about the 49% as long as we can get 51%? And there's some very big differences between those two modes of decision making. One, the latter creates adversarial listening because your job is to find what's weak in what's being said by someone you disagree with. Whereas a consensual form of decision making means you're always looking for the strength in the other person's argument. What can I bridge to that might join mine with his and then move toward that, that synthesis? So, so one way to look at it is that you know when we had a really contentious issue to deal with in the meeting for worship on the occasion of business, instead of 10 minutes of silence, we'd have 30 minutes of silence before we started talking. And that, I saw it time after time, a community that had been abuzz all week with, mm. you know, this is terrible or this is wonderful and how are we going to, you know, get it our way. After 30 minutes, and they'd come into the meeting with that energy. After 30 minutes, they, everyone would be in a different place and we wow. would have much different discussion than we had had before. That, incidentally, was the process that led Quakers in the New World to free their slaves because of the work of a man named John Woolman, 80 years before the Civil War was fought. First religious community in the United States to do that out of this consensual decision-making process, which went on for 20 years prior to the decision. John Woolman making huge sacrifices during that 20-year period to travel all up and down the East Coast and bring his message if we're really serious that there is that of God in every person, it is an abomination on us that we are holding and keeping slaves. So 20 years later, they get 80 years ahead of the Civil War by freeing their slaves. Mm. But um, so, you know, you, you, have to, you have to create these, these tension-holding mechanisms that use silence in order to to settle people enough, I think, to create that container where being in right relationship counts for more than being right. But let's expand the lens on this, what it means to silence people. You know, if I look at you and I say, shut up, that's a pretty obvious Just to say, you'd probably be right fool to, to tell me to shut up. <laughs> I'm willing to take that advice. Uh, Cassidy and I tell Kevin to shut up all the time. <laughs> that's, that's a healthy community then. <laughs> and I and I consider all, it a blessing. It's all on the table, right? Yeah, yes. There's nothing backstage about it. That's, that's right. Healthy. That's very healthy. But there are this society is filled with people who feel silenced, not by anyone just saying shut up but because nobody ever listens to them. Mm. The narrative on CNN or NBC or in the conventional American story omits them. Until black historians came on the scene, we didn't know one half of 1% if, if we were limited to history books and history courses of what the black experience in this country has really been. We know more about it now because it's apocalypse time, and that apocalypse means revelation, and it's we're, this is being revealed. So 
the, I think there, there's that there's that form of silencing. I'm, my people and I are not represented in history, you know, by any of the official sources. We're not part of the national narrative mm. of what America is or who Americans are. That's one way of being silenced, and that's everywhere. You know, that's women, that's young people, that's people of color. You know, to a great extent in, in American history, it's been anybody who wasn't like me, white, male, straight, relatively well-off, mm. um, you know, privileged person. Um, anybody else, that weren't, they weren't part of the story, you know. And part of my blindness, I think, you know, is pretty clearly coming into early adulthood was that I was raised in a way that made me feel I was raised in a society that made me feel like part of it all the time, mm -hmm. totally and comfortably at home. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me that I was the other to millions of people. I write about this in the new book. Right. Um, that, that's part of unconscious white supremacy. Mm. So there's that. But think also of this. What is most people's experience of going to church or going to school at almost any level? Is it the experience of sitting in a room with a group of people where a professor is saying or a preacher is saying, what's your faith experience? Mm. What do you understand about this subject or about the question that we've put, I've put before you or the body of data we're looking at together? Tell us. Let, let's, let's talk. Let's, let's combine our observations or our interpretations or what is, you know, in the church— what dost thou know experientially? And how can we pool that in a community faith journey? No, that, that's not most people's experience. Most people's experience is that both church and school is a spectator sport, an audience. Mm -hmm. That's right. You, 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 you know, you no more uh, feel invited to raise your hand in the middle of a sermon and say, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't square with my experience. <laughs> that doesn't square with who I know you to be. You'd no more do that than you would attend a, a $200 per person ticket show on Broadway and stand up in the middle of the audience and say, wait a minute, I don't like that song. You know? <laughs> or this, this play isn't telling my truth. And try to engage the cast in a conversation. Or, or at a football game. I mean, you can boo and hiss. But you can't run onto the field and say, let me show you how to throw that ball, you know. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's audience spectator stuff that we get formed or deformed in. And and that's part of the problem when we, we then come to the issues around democracy. Mm -hmm. People treat it as a spectator sport. They sit in the stands and they cheer or they boo. Or they wait for the great leader to tell them the score. Yeah, mm. you know how there's what, what way is true north, even if the leader is holding a compass that's always right next to a huge magnet, mm. the needle mm. keeps flipping yeah. from one direction to the next. And if that sounds familiar, I guess I intend it to sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions we love to ask people is if they have a favorite book or poem, 
uh, or author that they might recommend to our listeners? Other than themselves. <laughs> you can recommend yourself. Well, I, we'll certainly be recommending you. <laughs> I, I just want to say this about my 10th book, which, as you know, is about aging. I, when, when I finished it, I said to my editor, it took me 10 books to do it, but I finally found a subject I know something about. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's my current favorite. But, uh, authors that I would recommend to people was the question, right? So I go a couple different ways with that. I'll, um, Thomas Merton is obviously one of my very favorite authors because he changed my life. Mm. Um, I'm not real fond, and neither was he fond um, toward the end of his life, of his early, very pious, eager-to-convert-other-people books. Mm -hmm. It was much more fond, as, as I think makes a lot of sense, with the books in which he was raising questions and wrestling with real stuff. You know, he, he spent the first 10 years or so 12, 15, I don't know how many he, he had. His life was evenly divided between outside the monastery and inside the monastery, mm -hmm. 27 years each. And in that latter period, he started drawing on, on Islam and on Zen and, uh, and, and so forth and so on. His favorite book of all those he, he wrote, quote, was The Way of Shuang Tzu, which is the mm -hmm. teachings of a fourth century BC Taoist teaching master in China, which he didn't even write. He wrote a brilliant introduction to it. <laughs> but when he ranked his books towards the end of his life, that one was at the very top. Right. Many people would say, wait a minute, that's not a Christian book. Mm. It's a Taoist book. Mm. And I know what Merton's answer would be. The teachings of Shuang Tzu revealed the truths of his own tradition in a new and fresh way. Right. Mm. Brought them to life for him. Mm -hmm. in a way that the layered over theological interpretations layered over a thousand times had kind of killed and and deadened. So I love most, I love, I still love the Seven Story Mountain, although he didn't love it at the end of his life. But I love his journals. I love the sign of Jonas. I love confessions of a guilty bystander. Mm -hmm. I love the birds of appetite. I mean, these wonderful, titles, you know, that are just full of rich, probing, questioning stuff. There's a lot in his Asian journal, the last book that he wrote, that I just adore, including the fact that he came to what he regarded as his greatest religious spiritual epiphany in a Buddhist garden in Ceylon, a garden of great reclining Buddhas. You know, he says, I finally found what I've been looking for all my life. Yeah. And all his emptiness and all his compassion. Amen. That's exactly yeah. right. And uh, I, I just love that. And it's been very instructive for me. So Merton, you know, of all the religious writers um, that I know anything about, I was a very close friend of Henry Nouwen's, some of his early books especially. Mm -hmm. We worked together for about a decade in one way or another. And both a book like Reaching Out um, yes. or uh, some of his other early works. And, of course, the conversations that he and I had for many, 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 many hours were hugely impactful mm. me. Um, I heard you mentioning Richard Rohr before I came on. Mm. I love Richard Rohr. 
Um, and you know, there are a lot of contemporary writers that are that are work that are that are very important to me and a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would also name in a different genre Wendell Berry. Um, yes. Very, to me, a very important writer. Yes. And what a lot of people don't realize is that in addition to essays um, on, you know, back to the land and local ecological values, a local market economy and so forth, and, and stewardship of the land, he's also written a lot of amazing poetry. And what for me actually are my favorites of his, a series of novels about Port William and right. the Port William membership based on life in this small Kentucky town. He he wrote the first of these at age 27 or 6, I think. It's incredible. Wow. It's, called, it's called The Memory of Old Jack. Right. And now being an old man, I know that what I thought when I first read it is true. He got inside the mind at age 26 or 7 of an old man. How did he do that? Yeah. He, he, he had this guy talking and thinking like my grandfather, my beloved grandfather, talk, spoke and thought. How did he do that at age 26, 27? And then how did he write 10 more novels where the, the characters are the same, but a different one is, is f- focused on each time or a different family or a different set of circumstances? Right on, I think probably the last one was written in his 70s. One of the more recent ones is called Hannah Coulter. Mm-hmm. And my wife tells me, she asks, how does he get the voice of a woman so accurate? Mm-hmm. So this is brilliant stuff, and it's human stuff. And, you know, there's, yeah, there's theology in it for sure, but it's, it's not academic theology. It's kind of lived experience. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please. Take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. And then finally, I read a lot of poetry. Um, Mm. And that's interesting to me because until I was an adult student at Pendle Hill and took a brilliant poetry class, which was dialogue style, not academic, didactic, you know, I'm going to tell you what the poet meant. This teacher was, what does, how do you, your, how does your life intersect this poem? And what does this poem illumine in your life? And so I read a lot of poetry, and like many people, Mary Oliver is one of my favorites. And I even have one here that I'd be glad to read. It's called When Death Comes, and I thought of it because I remembered a, a great line in it about silence. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step 
through the door, full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name, a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Well, now we're just speechless. <laughs> exactly. She leaves us that way, doesn't she? Yes, she, yes, does. she does. Over and over again. Thank you for sharing that. We we joke that we can't record an episode without Thomas Merton and Mary Oliver showing up at least once. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you're talking to the right people. Then. <laughs> and and we it's funny because we consider ourselves poetry geeks and have had a couple episodes where we've spoken very similarly to what you just described a uh, like a poetry class where the poetry where does our life intersect and we've right. done an episode and. So Mary Oliver's come up numerous times, and so you know, as you well know, you guys know this because you live this. But the, the, one of the great things about poetry, the reason it's so appealing to people who are on a spiritual quest, is that there's a lot of space and a lot of silence between the lines and between the words. Poets do what Emily Dickinson counseled, which mm. is to tell the truth but tell it slant. Mm. Academics tend to run headlong at the truth and just slam their head into it. Right. Mm. And then if someone disagrees with them, they slam their head into it. <laughs> and academic writing is very compact. There's not much space in it, if any. Right. Not much silence. Right. So poetry really, poetry and silence have a great relationship to each other. Wendell Berry has a great poem called How to Be a Poet. And a lot of it is about get away from the electronic screen, you know, get away from the wired life, get away from the news, get away from the busyness. Make space for silence in your life. Make space for space in your life. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. only so are you going to find the music of your own soul, mm. which is poetry. I mean, when you talk about Wendell Berry, one of my favorite poems is his piece of wild things that... Uh... I come back to that over and over and over again. Yeah, I love that one, too. Parker, we also love to ask people who have conversations with us if they have a particular silence hero. Now, I, I, I'm i going to guess that Thomas Merton would be in your top three, but I'm wondering if there might be one or two other persons who you would think of in that way. 
Well, I will. Um, I'll I'll pull out a name that nobody's ever ever used before because we all know the famous <clears throat> the famous ones, right? Okay. And and they're wonderful. I mean, the the Thich Nhat Hans of the world <clears throat> or the Dalai Lamas. Uh-huh. Although, like Merton, they are some of the noisiest silent people you know in their lives that you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Talk and write a lot, <clears throat> and I think that I think what's special about their writing, and this is true of, of uh, Wendell Berry too, is that it's 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 you could call it word out of silence, and, mm-hmm. and that's why the words are so rich um, and so deep and true. And then they return into silence and come back with more words, although that's not their intent. It just happens. <laughs> in, um, in a little book called Let Your Life Speak, <clears throat> I, tell, I have a chapter where I talk about um, one of my deep dives into depression. And um, it, what I do in, in this chapter where I talk about my depression is I, I talk about how much difficulty have most people have in in knowing how to express their desire to help a depressed person? And usually, their help ends up making you more depressed. Um, so, because unfortunately, part of our desire to help is to prove ourselves good helpers, and so we do what I call drive-by helping, um, like. People walk into the living room, my living room when I was depressed, and they would say, oh, Parker, you're, you're such a wonderful person. You've helped so many people, and you've written such beautiful books. How can you possibly be depressed? And the inner feeling would be, I'm a worm, and I've just faked out one more person. And if they knew who I really was, they would you know, throw me into the outer darkness. Mm-hmm. Because there's, depression is a is a time when you cannot believe anything good about yourself. The voice of depression is saying you're worthless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a fraudulence to that kind of help. And other people would say, it's a beautiful day outside, Parker. Take a walk, you know, smell the flowers, feel the breeze and the sun. And that would depress me because in depression, you intellectually know that it's a beautiful day outside, but you cannot feel one scintilla of that in your body. Mm-hmm. Your, it, depression isn't just a feeling of, of sadness. It's it's a feeling of no feeling at all. It's You can't feel anything. And that's what's terrifying about it, including connection with other people. You can't feel that. And it's this, so that it's isolation doubled down. And that's terrifying for a human being because of that communal part of the human paradox. So there was this one man, he died a few years ago. He was probably 10 years older than I. His name was Bill Tabor, and he was a Quaker elder. And after asking my permission to do this, every afternoon for weeks, he came to my house at a given hour He was always there when he said he would be there. And he he walked in. I I would be sitting in a chair. He would kneel down in front of me. He would take off my shoes and socks or my slippers and socks. I mean, often I hadn't even gotten dressed that day. I was in 
pajamas in a bathroom because that's as far as I could go. And he would start to massage my feet. He wouldn't say a word, except that occasionally, out of his own practice of silence, out of his own deep meditation, he would say very briefly something like, I feel your struggle today. But that's all. Sometimes he'd say, I feel like you're getting a little stronger today. And that would be all. No advice, just this, this massaging of the only place in my body where I could feel the human touch and feel connected to another human being. Everything else was dead and gone. And he had, he, all he wanted to do I, th I think he would have said, I'm simply trying to be present to you, as, as we know, well, as the wise among us know, to be present at the bedside of a dying person. I mean, you don't, you don't sit at that bedside saying, why are you dying? I've got, you're a great human being. You know, why would you want to die? <laughs> and you don't say you know, to someone who's connected to tubes and wires, why don't you get outside and enjoy the fresh air? It, a depressed person is dying. It's death in life. And that's why I said earlier, I have evidence of resurrection, mm. having not only survived, but thrived after three deep dives. The big thing about Bill Tabor is that he didn't do drive-by caring. He didn't do false advice caring, and he didn't do drive-by caring. And I eventually understood why. Those other people were afraid of me. They were afraid if they stayed too long or touched me or engaged me, they'd catch my disease. They'd catch my mental illness. Now, that I, it sounds ridiculous on the surface, but I think that's exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. And it was drive-by because at some level they knew they couldn't help me at all, but now they could ch check it off their list, you know, mm -hmm. go see Parker and tell him you care. And so off the to-do list, Today, I've met my quota for being a good person. Yeah. And that leaves you even more depressed. But Bill Tabor didn't regard my condition as an infectious disease, which is what happens with a lot of folks in a, when one is in a state of depression. And he didn't have any need to save me because he knew he couldn't. He just had a need to be with me in a way, well, he knew I had a need for him to be with me in a way that was sustainable. Mm -hmm. And he was faithful to that, to that commitment for weeks and months, and it helped see me through. And it was all rooted in this very quiet man's practice of silence, practice of prayer, practice of contemplation, he, he had had some wounds in his own life, and he was what Henry Nouwen called the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. So he knew exactly what it meant to be, not just to play that role, but to be that person. And I will never forget him. Parker, I, thank you for sharing that um, and just hearing it anew. I remember reading that for the first time and just weeping and immediately sharing it with people that I know have experienced depression, just how powerful that is that 
that presence and that. Wow. Uh, do you have any Bill? Bill was his name. Is that right? Bill Tabor. Bill Tabor. Do you have any uh, pictures of you and Bill together? You know, I don't, and I regret yeah. that very much. And his wife died a few years back, and I mm. uh, never had an opportunity to ask if she had some. Mm. I know of some pictures of the, of, the, of, of Bill, mm-hmm. but not of us together. Yeah. But I have strong pictures in my heart, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 That's kind. Thank you so much. That's, That's powerful. Really... Yeah, I remember that story. And it, but to hear it from your mouth it was, it, I'm just sitting here weeping as you're telling me. So. Right. I'm glad for an opportunity to honor Bill, and it really is, um, for me, a hero of silence because of what came out of the silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being willing to talk and to share your thoughts and your insight, your wisdom. This has truly been a lovely, lovely conversation. I'm, well, I'm grateful. Thank yeah. you for inviting me, and thank you for your hospitality, which makes... This is... See, I, I call I don't call this a conversation when it goes the way it did. I call it a seance. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> call, 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 call Spirit, it the spirits are with us. Yeah, yeah it works for us. Something, right? Yeah. yeah. Call yeah. It. You, you help facilitate it. Yeah, so. We talk a lot in this podcast about getting to that place of recognition and recognizing in one another kind of the same touch to mystery of course that we can't define or describe but it's definitely i've gotten chills multiple times in this conversation Mm. of just feeling um something here yeah well thank you i'll leave you with with what i often leave my audiences with i'll i'll say at the beginning if if this goes well um, which this has gone wonderfully well then i'll tell you i'll tell you a, a quaker joke and this will be a rare experience because there are only two of them. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll tell you one. So here it is. And it has to do with Quaker jujitsu. <laughs> so this Quaker farmer has this mule that's never done a lick of work for him. <laughs> and uh, for 10 years, he has laid, this farmer has labored in a friendly way to get this mule to develop some good work habits. But it just isn't happening. So finally, one day. The farmer goes out to the barn. He lifts up the mule's ear and speaks very softly into that ear. And he says, friend mule, thee knows that I am a Quaker. Thee knows that I am a nonviolent man. Thee knows that I will not swear at thee or even shout at thee. Thee knows that I will not slap thee. I I will not hit thee with a stick or kick thee Mm. or whip thee. But what thee does not know is that I might sell thee to the Baptist farmer down the road who will beat the living hell out of you. <laughs> so, you know, I say to my audiences, you know, I aspire to be a nonviolent person, but there's always a way to get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's so spectacular. The piece of the book. I'll just close with this. The piece of the book right in the prelude where I talk about gravity and levity mm-hmm. is very real for me. Right. I wouldn't know how to live without levity. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Thanks to all of you. I really have enjoyed this time. Gladly do it again. Maybe there will be an 11th book. Who knows? Good. Yeah. Great. Keep writing. Great. <laughs> all righty. Well, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Blessings to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us.
Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.